Chapter Twelve, Part One of the Life of Clara Barton, Volume Two by William Barton. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Twelve, Part One: The Red Cross in Peace. The Red Cross, as organized in Europe, and as Clara Barton learned of it there, had no ministry except in times of war. It was one of the distinctive features of Clara Barton's plan that the American Red Cross should give service in any time of national or possibly of international calamity. So far as the Red Cross existed by virtue of an international treaty, its work was to care for the wounded of the battlefield. But the American Red Cross as incorporated in the District of Columbia, and as operated under the direction of Clara Barton, offered an agency immediately available for the relief of suffering wherever the need was greater than could be met by local benefactions. It will be remembered that the first service of the American Red Cross was in the autumn of 1881, in the forest fires of Michigan, almost a year before the official accession of the united states to the treaty of geneva the report which reached clara barton and the nation that half the state of michigan was on fire was of course an exaggeration and she was not deceived by it but she knew that the need was greater than could be met by local philanthropy Already there had been organized a single unit of the Red Cross at Dansville, New York. Clara Barton flung out the Red Cross flag in front of her home and called her organization into activity. The two neighboring cities of Rochester and Syracuse came immediately to her assistance. Contributions which aggregated $3,000 were immediately placed at her disposal. Miss Barton's home became a center of activity, a depot for the packing and shipping of supplies. The second auxiliary of the Red Cross in the United States was organized at Rochester, with a membership of 250, that at Syracuse followed immediately. The total amount received and distributed by the Red Cross in money and material amounted to $80,000. The Michigan fires brought to Miss Barton's assistance Dr. Julian B. Hubble. She had known him in Dansville as an instructor in the seminary which was located there. She knew him as a man to be relied upon. When the forest fires occurred, Dr. Hubble was a medical student in the University of Michigan. She wired him at once to proceed to the scene of the fire and give her accurate information. Dr. Hubble reported that hundreds of people had been suffocated and burned to death in the rapid sweep of the flames, and that many thousands were homeless and in need of shelter, food, clothing, and medical care. Miss Barton at once commissioned Dr. Hubble as field agent of the Red Cross. This was the beginning of a relationship which was never broken until the death of Clara Barton. 
Dr. Hubble completed his medical course and was commissioned as general field officer of the American National Red Cross. This position he occupied from 1881 until her resignation in 1904. He was with her in every one of the American fields of service, accompanied her to Turkey at the time of the Armenian massacres, went with her to Cuba at the time of the Spanish War, and was as indispensable to her as her own right hand. After the termination of her presidency of the American Red Cross, he remained near her, was with her in her last illness, and stood beside her when she died. With her nephew Stephen, he accompanied her body to the old home in Oxford and wept beside her grave. He was among the friends, and their number was not small, who were faithful to her to the very end of life. It is not the purpose of the present author to relate in detail the story of the work of the Red Cross during the next twenty-three years. Clara Barton herself has done that in a large octavo volume of nearly seven hundred pages. To that book reference must be had for any adequate idea of her service for almost a quarter of a century. Almost every year beheld a calamity of sufficient magnitude to call for the official activity of the American Red Cross. The mere list of the fields of its service is notable. 1881, the Michigan Forest Fires. 1882, the Mississippi River Floods. 1883, the Mississippi River Floods. 1883, the tornado in Louisiana and Alabama. 1883, the Balkan War. 1884, the Ohio and Mississippi River floods. 1885, the Texas famine. 1886, the Charleston earthquake. 1888, the tornado at Mount Vernon, Illinois. 1888, the Florida yellow fever epidemic. 1889, the Johnstown flood. 1892, the Russian famine. 1893, the tornado at Pomeroy, Iowa. 1893 and 94, the hurricane and tidal wave in the South Carolina islands. 1896, the Armenian massacres in Turkey and Asia Minor. 1898 to 1900, the Cuban Reconcentrado Relief. 1898, the Spanish-American War. 1900, the Galveston Storm and Tidal Wave. 1904, the typhoid fever epidemic at Butler, Pennsylvania. In almost every instance, Clara Barton went in person to the field. Where she went was order, efficiency, sympathy, and comfort. In the days of the Civil War, the official sign of a hospital was the yellow banner, still used in the quarantine service to designate a hospital for the treatment of contagious diseases. It was and is a respectable and worthy emblem, but there was nothing very inspiring about it. 
where clara barton went on her missions of mercy two flags floated the stars and stripes and the beautiful white flag with its cross of blazing red clara barton loved the color red the red rose was the flower of her family a dash of red she almost invariably had about her clothing somewhere it was altogether in keeping with her personal tastes that the emblem which came to symbolize her life work was of the color which never failed to gladden her eye in eighteen eighty one she set out as she herself related in her first article for the associated press to make the name and emblem of the red cross as familiar in america as for many years it had been in almost every other civilized nation she succeeded in doing this not simply by a campaign of publicity but by the practical agency of applied mercy when fire or famine or flood devastated a region and its victims were homeless and despairing and local agencies for relief were overworked and working aimlessly or at cross purposes the unfurling of the flag of the red cross was the sign of hope it meant not only human kindness and sympathy but confidence and efficiency and success from every one of these twenty fields clara barton came back laden down with the grateful testimonials of the communities to which she had brought comfort and help a very brief outline of her work in these several fields may be summarized from her own reports the work for the michigan forest fires has already been referred to and reference has been made to the first expedition of the red cross for the relief of the sufferers from the mississippi floods a further word should be said concerning the service of the red cross during the floods and then a brief summary of the work in each of the other fields mississippi and ohio river floods eighteen eighty two to eighty three the spring rise of the waters of the mississippi brought great devastation and a cry went over the country in regard to the sufferings of the inhabitants of the mississippi valley for hundreds of miles the great river was out of its bed and raging madly over the country sweeping in its course not only the homes but often the people the animals and many times the land itself this constituted a work of the relief clearly within the bounds of the civil part of our treaty and again we prepared for work again our infant organization sent its field agent dr hubbell to the scene of disaster where millions of acres of the richest valley cotton and sugar lands of america and thousands upon thousands of homes under the waters of the mightiest of rivers where the swift rising floods overtook alike man and beast in their flight of terror sweeping them ruthlessly to the gulf beyond or leaving them clinging in famishing despair to some trembling roof or swaying tree-top till relief could reach and rescue them the national association with no general fund 
sent of its personal resources what it was able to do, and so acceptable did these prove, and so convincing were the beneficences of the work that the cities of Memphis, Vicksburg, and New Orleans desired to be permitted to form associate societies and work under the National Association. This was permitted, and those societies have remained until the present time, New Orleans organizing for the entire state of Louisiana. The city of Rochester, proud and grateful of its success in the disaster a few months before, again came to the front and again rendered excellent service. In the spring of 1883 occurred the first great rise of the Ohio River, 1,000 miles in extent. This river, although smaller than the Mississippi, is more rapid in its course and its valleys hold the richest grain lands, the most cultivated farms, representing, in fact, the best farming interests of America. The destruction of property was even greater here than in the cotton and cane lands of the Mississippi. Again, our field agent was dispatched and did excellent work. The entire country was aroused, and so liberal were the contributions to the various committees of relief that when Dr. Hubble retired from the field, having completed the work, he had still unexpended funds in hand, but they were soon needed. The Louisiana and Mississippi Tornado of 1883. In less than a month occurred the fearful tornado of Louisiana and Mississippi, which cut a swath clear of all standing objects for thirty miles in width and several hundred miles in length, running southeast from the Mississippi River to the Gulf of Mexico. Our special agent for the South, Colonel F. R. Southmade, took charge of the Red Cross relief in this disaster, and so efficient was his work that societies struggled for organization under him and the Red Cross was hailed as a benediction wherever he passed. This was in May, 1883. Our association now enjoyed for eight months a respite from active work. It was surely needed. It was the longest rest we had yet known, and afforded some small opportunity to gather up its records of past labors, organize some societies, and compile a history of the Red Cross, so much needed for the information of our people, and so earnestly asked for by them, as well as by the United States Senate. The Ohio River Floods of 1884 the rapidly melting snows of February 1884 brought the thousand miles of the Ohio River again out of its bed. A cry went out all over the country for help. The government, through Congress, took immediate action and appropriated several hundred thousand dollars for relief to be applied through the War Department. The Red Cross agents must again repair to the field, its societies be again notified. 
but its president felt that if she were to be called every year to direct the relief work of the association in these inundations it was incumbent upon her to visit the scene in person to see for herself what floods were like to learn the necessities and be able to direct with the wisdom born of actual knowledge of the subject and accordingly with ten hours preparation she joined dr hubble on his way and proceeded to pittsburgh the head of the ohio river there the societies were telegraphed that cincinnati would be headquarters and that money and supplies should be sent there this done we proceeded to cincinnati by rail any description of the city upon our entrance would fall so far short of the reality as to render it useless the surging river had climbed up the bluffs like a devouring monster and possessed the town large steamers could have plied along its business streets ordinary vocations were abandoned bankers and merchants stood in its relief houses and fed the hungry populace and men and women were out in boats passing baskets of food to pale trembling hands stretched out to reach it from third-story windows of the stately blocks and warehouses of that beautiful city sometimes the water soaked away the foundations and the structure fell with a crash and was lost in the floods below in one instance seven lives went out with the falling building and this was one city and probably the best protected and provided locality in a thousand miles of thickly populated country it had not been my intention to remain at the scene of disaster but rather to see investigate establish an agency and return to national headquarters at washington which in the haste of departure had been left imperfectly cared for but i might almost say in military parlance that i was surprised and captured i had made no call beyond the red cross societies expected no supplies from other sources but scarcely had news of our arrival at cincinnati found its way to the public press when telegrams of money and checks from all sides and sources commenced to come in with letters announcing the sending of material the express office and freight depots began filling up until within two weeks we were compelled to open large supply rooms which were generously tendered to the use of the red cross a description could no more do justice to our flood of supplies than to the flood of waters which had made them necessary cases barrels and bales of clothing food household supplies new and old all that intelligent awakened sympathy could suggest was there in such profusion that so far from thinking of leaving it one must call all available help for its care and distribution the government would supply the destitute people with food tents and army blankets 
and had placed its military boats upon the river to rescue the people and issue rations until the first great need should be supplied. The work of the Red Cross is supplemental, and it sought for the special wants likely to be overlooked in this great general supply and the necessities outside the limits of governmental aid. The search was not difficult. The government provided neither fuel nor clothing. It was but little past midwinter. A cyclone struck the lower half of the river with the water at its greatest height, and whole villages were swept away in a night. The inhabitants escaped in boats, naked and homeless hail fell to the depth of several inches and the entire country was encased in sleet and ice the water had filled the coal mines so abundant in that vicinity until no fuel could be obtained the people were more likely to freeze than starve and against this there was no provision we quickly removed our headquarters from cincinnati to evansville three hundred miles below and at the head of the recent scene of disaster a new stanch steamer of four hundred tons burden was immediately chartered and laden to the water's edge with clothing and coal good assistants both men and women were taken on board the red cross flag was hoisted and as night was setting in after a day of intense cold amid surging waters and crashing ice the floating wrecks of towns and villages great uprooted giants of the forest plunging madly to the sea the suddenly unhoused people wandering about the river banks or huddled in strange houses with fireless hearths the clear-toned bell and shrill whistle of the josh v throop announced to the generous inhabitants of a noble city that from the wharves of Evansville was putting out the first Red Cross relief boat that ever floated on American waters. The destroyed villages and hamlets lay thick on either bank, and the steamer wove its course diagonally from side to side, calling the people to the boat, finding a committee to receive and distribute, and learning as nearly as possible the number of destitute persons put off the requisite quantity of clothing and coal and steamed away quickly and quietly leaving sometimes an astonished few sometimes a multitude to gaze after and wonder who she was whence she came what that strange flag meant and most of all to thank God with tears and prayers for what she brought. In this manner, the Red Cross proceeded to Cairo, a distance of 400 miles, where the Ohio joins the Mississippi River, which latter at that time had not risen and was exciting no apprehension. Returning, we revisited and resupplied the destitute points the government boats running over the same track were genial and friendly with us and faithful and efficient in their work it should be said that notwithstanding all the material we had shipped and distributed 
so abundant had been the liberality of the people that on our return to Evansville we found our supply greater than at any previous time. At this moment, and most unexpectedly, commenced the great rise of the Mississippi River, and a second cry went out to the government and the people for instant help. The strongest levies were giving way under the sudden pressure, and even the inundation of the city of New Orleans was threatened. Again the government appropriated money, and the War Department sent out its rescue and ration boats, and again the Red Cross prepared for its supplemental work. In an overflow of the Mississippi, owing to the level face of the country and the immense body of water, the valley is inundated at times thirty miles in width, thus rendering it impossible to get animals to a place of safety. Great numbers drown, and the remainder, in a prolonged overflow, have largely starved, the government having never included the domestic animals in its work of relief. This seemed an omission of vital importance, both humanely and economically considered, and the Red Cross prepared to go to the relief of the starving animals of the Mississippi Valley. It would also supply clothing to the destitute people whom the government would feed. The navigation of the Mississippi River calls for its own style of boats and pilotage, the latter being both difficult and dangerous, especially with the changed channels and yawning crevices of a flood. The steamer Throop was left at Evansville, and the Maddie Bell chartered at St. Louis and laden with corn, oats, hay, meal, and salt for cattle, clothing and cooking utensils for the destitute people, tea, coffee, rice, sugar and medicines for the sick, and as quickly as possible followed the government steamers leaving the same port with rations of meat and meal. We finished the voyage of relief, having covered the Ohio River from Cincinnati to Cairo and back twice, and the Mississippi from St. Louis to New Orleans and return, occupying four months' time on the rivers, in our own chartered boats, finishing at Pittsburgh, and taking rail for Washington on the 1st of July, having traveled over 8,000 miles, and distributed in relief of money and estimated material $175,000. The government had expended an appropriation from the Treasury on the same waters of $150,000 in money, and distributed it well. The difference was that ours was not appropriated, we gathered it as we used it. The Texas Famine of 1885-86 to 86. Occasional rumors reached us in the years 1885 and 1886 about a drought in Texas and consequent suffering, but they were so contradictory and widely at variance that the public took little or no heed of them. During the year of 1886, the Reverend John Brown, a North Presbyterian minister, located at Albany, 
Shackelford County, Texas, began making appeals by circular and oral address to the people of the northern states, in which he asserted that there were a hundred thousand families in northwestern Texas who were utterly destitute and on the verge of starvation. He stated that since the close of the war, a large number of poor families had been constantly crowding into Texas from the southern states principally, induced thither by land agents and others, who gave glowing representations of the character of the soil for farming purposes. These poor people, by hard labor and industry, had been generally able to make a living and nothing more. The last fall they had planted wheat and other grain quite extensively, but the rains came not and everything perished. And in the following spring and summer, too, everything put into the ground was blasted by the hot winds so that not a thing was raised for man or beast. For fifteen months no rain had fallen, and the condition of the people was pitiable and called aloud to the charitable throughout the land for relief. They must be carried through to the next summer, or they would perish. At a meeting of the citizens of Albany, Texas, they decided that the task of relieving the sufferers was greater than the well-to-do people of the state were able to undertake and that an appeal should be made to the good-hearted people of the North for immediate aid. The governor of Texas also published an appeal to the people of the whole land, asking for food for these people. But as there was no concerted action, and so many denials of the stories of suffering, little or nothing in the way of relief work was accomplished for some time. Spasmodic attempts were made, and some food for man and beast was contributed, but not enough to relieve a hundredth part of the needy. The Reverend Dr. Brown went to the state capitol and endeavored to interest the legislature in the matter, but there were seemingly so much misunderstanding and unbelief, and so many conflicting interests to reconcile, that he failed to receive any substantial assurances and left the place in disgust. When the citizens of Texas could not agree as to the necessities of their own people, it was not to be expected that the citizens of the country would take much interest in them. Hence the relief movement languished from inanition. About the middle of January 1887, Dr. Brown came to Washington, and as solicitor and receiving agent for the committee, which had issued an appeal to the country, appealed to me as president of the American National Red Cross, asking our organization to come to the relief of the people, who were in a deplorable state, greatly needing food and clothing. I immediately shipped to Texas all the stores that were then in our warehouse, but they were no great quantity. An appeal direct to the Red Cross required immediate attention, and I at once sought a conference with President Cleveland, who was greatly worried over the contradictory stories that were constantly printed, and was anxious to learn the truth about the matter. 
when i said that i should go to texas and see for myself he was greatly pleased and requested me to report to him the exact situation just as soon as i had satisfied myself by personal investigation dr hubble and i proceeded directly to albany texas where we arrived near the end of january we were met by the leading citizens and most heartily welcomed and accorded every privilege and attention we began our investigations at once in a systematic way carefully noting everything we heard and saw and in the course of a two weeks trip over the afflicted region we learned the extent of the need and formulated plans for its relief making albany our object point we travelled by private conveyance over such territory as we thought sufficient to give a correct knowledge of the condition of the country and the people we met large numbers of the residents both collectively and at their homes and learned from them personally and by actual observation their condition and what they had to depend upon during the next few months it will be borne in mind that when we entered upon this investigation little or no relief had come from the state and none was positively assured almost no rain had fallen during a period of eighteen months two planted crops had perished in the ground and the seed wheat sown the previous fall gave no signs of life the dust was rolling over the great wind-swept fields where the people had hidden their last little forlorn hope of borrowed seed, and literally a heaven of brass looked down upon an earth of iron. Here were twenty to forty counties, of a size commensurate with Texan dimensions, occupied by new settlers, making their first efforts in the pioneer work of developing home life in an untried country, soil, and climate. They had put their all into the new home and the little stock they could afford for its use. They had toiled faithfully, planted two and three times, as long as there was anything to plant or sow, and in most instances failed to get back their seed. Many had grown discouraged and left the country. The people were not actually starving, but they were in the direst want for many of the necessities of life, and it was only a matter of days when they would have reached the condition of the reconcentrados, as we later found them in Cuba. Hundreds of thousands of cattle had died for the want of food and water and their drying carcasses and bleaching bones could be seen in every direction as the eye wandered over the parched surface of the plains i at once saw that in the vastness of its territory and varying interests the real need of these suffering communities was not understood by the texas people it had not come home to them but that once comprehending it would be their wish to have it known and cared for by themselves and not by others outside of the state assuring these poor people that their actual condition should be made known to their own people through the authoritative means of the red cross 
and that they should be speedily cared for, we bade them farewell and hurried away to Dallas, where we intended to send out a statement to the people of the state. Arriving there, we sought an interview with Colonel Bellow of the Dallas News and laid before him the result of our observations. He placed the columns of his paper at our disposal, and through them we enlightened the people of the true status of affairs in their own state. The response was as quick as it was gratifying, and thence onward there was no further necessity for appealing to anyone outside of the state limits. Indeed, that act in the first place was the greatest mistake. As to the average Texan, feeling a genuine pride in the state's wealth and resources, it savored of frauds and imposition, and prejudiced him against the brother who would pass him by and appeal to outsiders. The Texas legislature appropriated $100,000 for food, and in the meantime rain began to fall, and the entire aspect of affairs began to change for the better. But there were still many needs unprovided for, clothing, fuel, seeds for gardens and fields, livestock, and many other things, and it was necessary to place these needs before the people. This the news took upon itself to do, and upon my suggestion it opened a popular subscription and announced that it would receive contributions of seed or cash and would publish the same from day to day and turn them over to the constituted authorities appointed to disperse them. In order to encourage the movement, I inaugurated it with the first subscription, and from that time until now, I do not believe anyone has heard of any need in Texas that has not been taken care of by her own people. The Texas famine brought into sharp relief the ideals of Clara Barton in emergencies of this character. It was at first proposed to meet the situation by a government appropriation, and a bill for such relief, passed by both houses of Congress, was promptly vetoed by President Cleveland. This veto brought severe criticism upon the President, but Clara Barton sustained him. What was needed in such an emergency, as she believed, was not to fly to Congress with appeals for an appropriation, but to call upon the people to send relief through an accredited agency that would account for the money and disperse it in systematic fashion. Her success in the Texas famine abundantly proved the wisdom of her course. The Mount Vernon, Illinois Tornado On Sunday, February 19th, 1888, a destructive tornado occurred at Mount Vernon, Illinois. Within three minutes after the fury of the storm had struck the town, thirty people had been killed and scores of others injured, and an immense amount of property destroyed. To add to the horrors already wrought, fire broke out in a dozen places. Those who were uninjured quickly came to the rescue quenching the flames and exerting themselves to relieve the unfortunate victims, 
who were, in most cases, pinned down under the wreckage of their houses. All night long these brave men and women worked, and when morning came the few houses that remained standing were filled with the dead and injured. Appeals for assistance were sent out to the people of the country, but through an improper statement of the situation the public was misled, and not realizing the pressing needs of the stricken community, failed to take up the matter in a business-like manner, and the town was left to suffer for a little of the great abundance that was around them. In their extremity, the despairing citizens appealed to the Red Cross for aid, which responded at once. A most deplorable situation was presented. The people were homeless and helpless, neglected, and in a state of mind bordering on insanity. After a somewhat hasty examination of the situation, the following simple message was sent to both the Associated and the United Press. The pitiless snow is falling on the heads of three thousand people who are without homes, without food or clothing, and without money. Clara Barton With only this little word to explain the needs, our generous American people responded promptly and liberally, as they always do when they fully understand what is needed. It was unnecessary to remain longer than two weeks with these people, who, as soon as they recovered from the first shock of their great misfortune, and when they felt that kind friends were by their side, lending them moral and substantial support, manfully commenced to bring order out of chaos, to rebuild their town and resume their usual vocations. Large quantities of relief supplies of all kinds quickly came to hand, and when we were ready to leave them, the Citizens Committee had in its treasury a cash balance of $90,000, and thus, with their blessings ringing in our ears, we left them. End of Chapter 12, Part 1